This is the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. Each week, Penny shares proven ADHD parenting strategies and her hard-won ADHD mama wisdom. This is not your physician's podcast. Penny discusses the genuine grit of the moment-by-moment peaks and valleys of this special parenthood. It's time to beat the chaos and challenges of raising a child with ADHD. Here's your host, Penny Williams. Welcome to this episode of the Parenting ADHD Podcast. I'm excited today to be talking to Kimberly Beeman, and we're going to talk about ADHD, counseling, and the creative arts, kind of a general discussion of counseling and what that looks like for ADHD and how you can get more creative with it, um, both with a counselor and at home yourself as a parent. Kimberly, I'm really excited to talk to you in this episode and share your insights. Will you start just by introducing yourself, who you are and what you do for our listeners? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Penny. I truly appreciate this opportunity to talk to you and um, continue with advocacy. And it's just an honor professionally and also personally uh, on this journey with ADHD myself and supporting other kids who have ADHD or uh, varying other um, things they're working on. So um, sure, I'd love to introduce myself. I am an author of a book called My Little Cupcake and also a licensed mental health counselor. And in addition to that, I have two little two little ones, um, and I really enjoy being a mom as well as giving back to the community and advocating on the topic of learning differences, specifically ADHD and dyslexia. I myself am dyslexic and um, also have ADD, and I've learned a lot and also um, grown as a result and enjoy giving back and that being a part of the work that I do. Um, so thank you so much again for having me. Absolutely. I'm so glad to have this conversation with you. Let's start by talking a little bit, I guess, in general terms about counseling for um, ADHD and learning differences. You know, kind of what what does that look like? What should parents expect? Um, maybe a little bit about how we can um, sort of interview counselors and, and determine who is going to be the best fit for our kids, that sort of thing. Sure. Yes, I, um, definitely. I'm happy to talk about that. There's different types of therapists. Uh, traditionally, you might hear or have heard of uh, therapists called cognitive behavioral therapists, which mm-hmm. work with kids with cog- uh, on the cognitive as well as the behavioral aspects of therapy. There's a lot of different types of uh, counseling, different types of therapists. My number one recommendation um, when I talk to uh, families or friends that are saying, hey, Kim, you know, I'm looking for a therapist for my child or for myself is to go on to a few websites that actually you can look up, um, put in specifically what you're looking for in a counselor, whether they are working with your child on self-esteem, are they working on self-injury, are they working on depression, what is the issue at hand? And there's, I can actually send you those links uh, if you'd like. Yeah, we'll put them in the show notes. Okay, great. And so they can actually type in specifically what they're looking for, the criteria all the way down to the zip code that they, where they live, um, male, female, just really detailed. And that would be one of the first steps. Also asking some of your local, um, 
colleges and uh, different places that you are comfortable with for maybe a resource list, whether that's through a community college or a school environment, such as through an elementary school counselor. Oftentimes they have resource list that they can give you. But if you want something quick, I suggest going onto these two websites. I don't want to quote it here because I might get the website kind of wrong. So I'd rather just, I'll send you the link. <laughs> yep, we will totally put the link out there. Okay. So I'll send you the link to those um, two sites. And in addition to that, once you have narrowed it down, let's say it's to your top three based on the criteria you're looking for, um, I would suggest to a parent, you know, giving, giving that therapist a call, just asking a few questions such as, what's your style of counseling? How do you relate to people when you're doing therapy? Um, there are counselors who are very, what we call client-centered, very focused on the individual. Um, you know, and then there's those that are more directive and it's not that one's bad or, or, or wrong or better. It's just, what's going to fit that child and the environment that what's going to be best for the personality of the individual. Um, some people just respond better to therapists that are very client centered and sort of hands off approach. Um, others would respond to a more directive, like, you know, what's going on. And they're just a little bit more direct in their approach. Um, right. yeah. So asking those, those, uh, questions is really helpful. Um, offhand and not being afraid to ask those questions because they're used to that. They're so used to getting those questions and, um, and, and it's important that you find somebody that you're confident in. So asking that is like a number one question. What style of counseling do you do? You parents can also go on, um, online. I'll send you the other link to this one that I'm talking okay. about, but there's actually a website, um, for every state, and I, I'm from Florida, so there's one for our state, in which you can actually type in the name of the therapist, and you can get a, a, a color that will come out as like green, yellow, or red as to their behavior and their conduct. And so it's really mm -hmm. important to check that out um, to be sure there's not been any, been any issues with that particular counselor. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm a, you know, as a therapist myself, I'm a huge advocate and I believe that counseling is very helpful and supportive for most, most individuals. If you find the right fit and, um, really kind of do your research on the, on the front hand. Yeah. And I think it's really important to you for, um, your child, of course, to connect and feel really comfortable with the counselor, but also as a parent too, I think, especially when your kids are younger, um, I know when we did counseling, when my son was a lot younger, um, you know, a good bit of that was also um, instructing me on what was going to be helpful, what strategies I could use um, in working on behavior and different issues at home. So, you know, I think you have to be able to really connect and, and feel good about working with that counselor too, as the parent. Oh, Yeah. Definitely. It's so important uh, that, that the parent has that sense of comfort as well as the child. So that makes yeah, sense. So <laughs> let's talk a little bit about then how to um, kind of implement creativity as um, a therapy approach. And then also, you know, I know that that then could tie into self-esteem and self-confidence and so many other ways. But let's start, I think, by talking about how that could be part of therapy. Sure. So there are a lot of different types of express, what we call expressive arts therapies that are involved in counseling. 
with kids, adolescents, and adults. Uh, some of them are what many people have heard of, such as use, use of uh, paint and coloring and drawing in the actual counseling session. But there are some things that are not as often spoken about, such as um, something for like for musicians, singing and songwriting, acting. There's something called psychodrama, which is role play. Uh, there are there's one one of my favorites that I've actually done with a few of my clients, mostly kids, is horticultural therapy, which is basically using the parallel of uh, creating a plant and how does a plant grow from a seed and into and blossom into the stem and it grows and then you know how does the leaves develop and and then talking about hey what happens if it doesn't what happens if the plant isn't growing and so we talk about that as a way of kind of parallel between the growth and the therapy in therapy or the growth in life and so there's many ways you can use expressive arts. And I recommend finding out what, what really gives, if you're talking about children, a child, the most joy. And if they don't know yet, that's okay, but it's about exploring through the creative arts and using those creative tools in therapy. Um, for an example, I had some clients, I worked at a charter school for kids with autism and I was the lead therapist and I worked with kids and families with autism and ADHD. And uh, often they had other things going on like depression or, um, a few kids had bipolar disorder and we had a couple kids that came in and um, they were, they, a few of them um, like uh, with Asperger's, like they really knew, uh, had this one interest, something they're really excited about and they wanted nothing to do with therapy until we started mm-hmm. using their interest, you know, using mm-hmm. it as the therapy session. And so one um, young man loved film and he only liked Disney films. So we started discussing uh, certain films at Disney and using it as role play, like, um, talking about social skills and how these characters talked and communicated to each other. And suddenly he became interested in learning more about his peers and relating to them and through his language. So that's kind of how, uh, counseling uses expressive arts and it's not about the end result. It's always about the process. And so parents can do that at home. They can start to incorporate different expressive arts and strategies with their kids and see a difference. I believe, um, I've personally benefited from it and I use it with my kids as well. Um, so I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about what that would look like then for parents and kids at home. Um, maybe give some examples of how they could implement that themselves. Yeah, definitely. So let's say we're talking about some therapists like to use if they're if they're considered play therapists. Now there's a difference between a play therapist and a counselor that includes play in their therapy. So you have somebody who's certified a play therapist. They went to school, they trained for it. Um, I took classes in play therapy. So I can say as a counselor, hey, I use play therapy in my in my counseling. So a play therapist would do things like tray therapy, where they mm-hmm. might have a big, huge box of sand and all these little trinkets and play toys. And it becomes sort of watching and sort of client-centered and focus on the child, the child's world and seeing how it develops in the sand. And there's a whole process. Well, parents can actually do something similar to that, which is um, in, in, an, in a cheaper way or a way that's more economically efficient instead of buying a huge, huge, you know, sandbox, for example, right. Kind of pricey. They can get a small plastic uh, box that you know maybe at Walmart or somewhere you use for 
shoes and you can get some sand and fill it. And you can actually look online. There's lots of ideas for parents about a sand tray and how you can use it in your home um, effectively. And it's also a sensory experience because kids can play in the sand. Um, That's just what I was going to say. It's a little OT too. Yes, definitely. And so um, there's different ways you can do that. I mean, I mean, my advice would be to find out getting to know your child as to what their needs are. Um, you, whereas one child may benefit and really like Santre and Hey, the other child may prefer to do something like, um, the use of songwriting and picking up a music as part of their healing. Um, and I always say with parents is, is taking that approach of sort of hands off, especially initially when you're using an expressive arts at home, it's more about, hey, this is what, here, here, here's the paint, here's the uh, paper, and, and letting that process evolve and watching it and using reflection. And so it's like saying, if a child was painting in front of you, let's say they're having a really bad day and you give them a, a paintbrush and um, paint and a piece of paper, it's like, um, uh, show, show me how you're feeling on the page. You know, instead of having to verbalize it, they're expressing it through their mind, what comes out on the paper, um, and then processing it with your child instead of, you know, more of a, Hey, tell me about your, what's on the paper and no judgment, just very much focus on, Oh, I see that. I see that here. And I see that's how you're feeling. And Oh, what color did you use? And what does that mean to you? And using as much of that interactions as possible versus saying, this is how you interpret it. It's more about how the child interprets their, um, their artwork. Yeah, and I think that's so important with kids with ADHD because they often have trouble communicating effectively with others, How, especially, um, you know, having that emotional awareness and having words to appropriately express it. So, you know, by giving them paint or colored pencils or crayons or whatever the medium is and telling them to show you how they're feeling or... Um, And then I think too, you know, if they don't, if they don't want to really dive into how they're feeling, then, you know, maybe it's just an outlet, right? You wouldn't necessarily, you know, if they push back and say, well, I don't want to show how I'm feeling. I don't want to paint how I'm feeling. Then I would say, yes, you don't want to do that. Yeah, it's more of then of reflecting back and, and sticking with it. Sometimes it might just take time and for that to start to come out, they might start then discussing it and they may not, and that's okay. It may not be the, the, the outlet for that, but yeah, you're right. You could then use it as, Hey, this is more of a coping skill. If the child's feeling anxious, you know, having that coloring box next to the bed and some tools in a drawer for the child to be able to turn to when they're feeling anxious at, let's say at bedtime or, um, so having like, each child having their own box of tools and the parent working with the child to figure out what those tools are. We had a child who had selective mutism and did not um, verbally speak with me in therapy when I was at the school for autism. And she would come in and she would knit and it helped her calm down. And her biggest goal for counseling was just developing trust. And for us to meet that and her not leave the room was a big like goal. It was like, Hey, we did it. You know, and I, we celebrated that. And so like recognizing those small steps and like even the fact that the child's willing to do that artwork or, you know, uh, work be in the process is a big step in and of itself. Yeah. And I think so many of those activities are calming too. You know, there's a reason that adult coloring books are so popular right now. It's because, you know, it's soothing and, um, it can be, you know, for some people it, 
it perfectionist in particular it can make you crazy but yeah. you know and that and that just says you know each person is different so find what is soothing to your child find what they want to engage in um mm-hmm. and then use that as the tool i think but um and, and I like how you talked about um, kind of reflective listening and not guiding that conversation, but letting our kids guide that. Um, I think that's really important because so often, you know, I learned this great lesson um, several years ago with our therapist when my daughter was developing a lot of anxiety around my son's um you know, meltdowns and things like that, especially in public. And so she started working with the same counselor that that we had been working with as a family for a while. And in her first session, she said, you know, my parents might as well build an altar to him and we can all bow down to it every day. And Mm -hmm. I immediately, you know, was like jumping out of my chair going, wait, that is not reality. And the therapist said, stop you know, don't interrupt her, listen, hear her out, because this is how she's feeling. And that was a huge aha for me. And I have used that for years now in my parenting very effectively. And, you know, it really helped me understand my son in a lot of ways, too, because, you know, he'll tell some tall tales. And, you know, I, I talk about in one of my books, I think, where he came home from school one day and he flung the door open and he said, so-and-so tried to kill me on the playground today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you and I know that nobody tried to kill him, literally. <laughs> but for him, it was this expressive um, way to share what that experience was like for him. And that was really a crucial um, perspective for me as his parent um, and for both of them to really recognize that they're sharing what it feels like, mm-hmm. not necessarily the reality of the situation. And I think, you know, the creative arts are a great outlet for that. Um, but in those conversations that you're talking about and interacting, it's really important to hear them out and let them say yes. whatever they're going to say, no matter how wild and crazy it is, because there's some nugget of insight in there somewhere. Absolutely. And um, I agree with you 100%, just reflective listening, empathy, um, and really listening to the child in their world through those expressions. And um, I wanted to give you an example of something I did yesterday with my own child, which yeah. I do with, with clients. And it was it was really awesome. It was kind of like a breakthrough moment, moment for me with my, with my child. And um, I did a technique called externalizing the problem, which is something parents can do at home with, if there's a problem at hand with their child. Um, and so we're working with our, our daughter with some just impulse control, some, fr- oh, she's very, gets very easily frustrated and um, some anger. And so we did this technique called externalize your problem, which basically um, I sat down with her after camp yesterday and I said, um, listen, today we're going to do some, a, f- a fun activity. I always start it with, Hey, it's going to be fun. And, um, I'm going to give you some coloring crayons. So she's interested. She's engaged. She likes to color. So, and I said, uh, I want you to show me on the paper, like if an, a, something you're feeling from, from yesterday, from what happened yesterday, because we had a little problem yesterday. And so she drew a picture of a sad face. And so I reflected, you're feeling mm-hmm. sad about 
happened and um she didn't get her way with something that had happened yesterday and I said okay well you're feeling sad and so um I understand that you're feeling sad and we talked about what she was feeling sad about she's pretty verbal so we talked she was using some of her language there with verbal expression and and then I said would you mind you know showing me a picture of something like something you might, how you might be feeling if you're angry and so she drew a picture of an angry face and I said if you were to give that anger a name what would you name it and she's like I'm naming it angry Al and I said oh I was like okay so that's angry Al okay nice and we we're talking to angry Al and I'm like so if angry Al was like super mad what could he do like to help himself calm down in the moment instead of kind of being out of control and so it was a it was really a break for a moment for us because she started talking for the first time about like how she could help her the anger mm-hmm. and so she started oh well angry owl I guess he could like I guess I get some coloring crayons I guess I could also you know just um uh maybe think about puppies and I said what think about puppies she's like, she's like well she goes well okay okay mom if if I if angry monster calms down you'll buy me a puppy and I said that's not the way it works <laughs> okay, okay, well, how about you color a puppy or think about puppies? It's just like, oh, that's a great idea for calming down. And so we just use that as a way to like engage and, t- and remove the blame and any yeah. blame feel from her to her angry out. And so it's something we commonly do with clients, um, especially if there's like an over frustration or like an anger issue. Um, we will work really hard on on separating the problem from the person and yeah because you know already kids with ADHD as you know Penny have a lot of problems like there's a lot of issues sometimes with self-confidence and Mm -hmm. and it's it's a lot of times it's the school system or the way that that kids are approached or how they feel about themselves as a result and so like I I think it's important to remove and I've heard I've heard this in many of your podcasts talking to other other people um about how, um, how important it is to remove that blame and to really focus on, um, them not being the problem. And so, mm-hmm. um, it just got me thinking to externalizing that issue. So that's, I love that. Yeah. Thanks. So that it worked really well. So we'll see what ha- happens as we continue with our angry owl, but, um, yeah, it, but it gives them an outlet as you know, a lot of times I think they feel ashamed of, how they're feeling because they recognize that a lot of times it might be out of scale for the situation or it might be a lot different than their peers. And so it does, it totally removes that blame and shame and allows them to still have that conversation um, in a way that's much gentler to them. I think Mm -hmm. that's awesome. Super awesome. (laughs) Yeah. So that parents can do or um, caregivers of any kind and even teachers could say to a child instead of focusing on the child and you know pulling them aside they could say um you know hey let's work on this and what would you what would you name that sadness and just kind of referring to it in that way um so that I don't know I can't speak enough about that because for me that's where I found the most success with Mm -hmm. with, it's been um removing the blame and shame and that's been one of the biggest hurdles in therapy is grief and loss and just grief and loss for kids that have gone through so much and so much pain and, and just feeling so down upon themselves. And so, um, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so I was thinking about creative arts and, um, you know, I talk a lot about for parents to create opportunities for success for our kids because they do, you know, get a lot of messages throughout their day in different areas of not being very successful, not being as capable. Um, and so I always talk about, you know, if your child's interested in an art, look for an art class or get the materials for the type of art that they're interested in at home and have a little mini studio in the corner, you know, of their bedroom or wherever. And um, so, you know, and especially I think with theater, this really comes into play is getting out in the community maybe and really interacting Um and these things can be a way to build self-confidence, you know, if they're really interested or they're good at it or they love it, then that's going to boost their self-confidence, right? My goodness. Yes. Um, that's like the best thing to do. And I, in my opinion, I'll say in your, here's like, I feels like in your opinion too, right. Getting out yeah. and being creative and getting your child involved in their interests. I a hundred percent agree. Um, so yeah, cause I talked to another a parent a few weeks back and she was talking with me about her child who has dyslexia. And she says, that's, what's benefiting her child the most, um, is getting her child involved in what she loves, which was theater, um, as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I experienced that personally growing up with dyslexia and attentional deficit. Um, I would spend my days daydreaming and feeling aloof and sort of dis, disconnected to the academic academia at school. Mm-hmm. Instead of being, um, instead of it consuming me, I was thankful that I had mentors and parents that put me into the arts. I mean, I got to go to, um, I, I signed up and volunteered for every talent show in elementary school. Um, and I think it's so important to have, have something. And if, if a parent doesn't know what that something is, that's okay. Just start. And I say, just, just give something a try and ask your child, how did it go? And if they don't express it verbally, maybe have a picture or, you know, um, have them show you through dance, how they're thinking or feeling. There's just ways to connect and, and kind of do the digging and figuring out what it is that, that would give your child a sense of joy and outside of academia or even as part of mm-hmm. academia. Um, I know, um, or Penny, just to share real quick, my mother used to, when I was a kid, she used to teach me, and I wanted nothing to do with books. And she, the only way I learned to read books and that was engaged was she would sing the story to me. And so get a child that all of their styles of learning, auditory, visual, tactile, different sensories and different ways that we learn as, as individuals, that really helps in, uh, with that whole process of finding what it is that we love that helps us to then learn. And yeah. so for me, it was auditory and visual. I, need, I needed pictures and the words didn't matter. I really wanted nothing to do with the words until they became alive. And so I think um, just trying different things out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What about teenagers? I think a lot of our conversation, um, especially examples, have been more geared towards younger kids. Yeah. So how do we engage teenagers in more creative activities? Um, And I think more the question really is how do we have the conversations with them? Like how do we as parents engage in this stuff? I think it's easy to get them involved in the creative arts when they're interested in that, but then those parent child conversations are often tougher with our teens. Yes. I, I completely hear what you're saying and um, having worked in different settings, it is very challenging and it's different when you get to the teenage years. One of the things that I have 
witnessed families do and also through counseling, um, like when I was at the charter school and then um, also in private practice counseling was the use of games. Um, They seem to be more age appropriate. So gaming, it could be it could be a, an appropriate video gaming kind of where you're getting involved with the child, or it could be more, I guess more I'm thinking of is games that you play board games. Mm -hmm. Now, not, you know, elementary age board games, but something appropriate. There's some board games out there. Um, I can send you other links to different uh, tools and resources that parents could use for teens. Okay. I'll send you that. And but there are, like, for example, when I used to do counseling with teens, the first thing that we were taught to do to build trust and rapport is to play games with teenagers. Um, I'm thinking back to the days that I was a counselor at UCF, University of Central Florida, and I worked in the Community Resource Center, and we got kids of all ages. And when the teenagers would come in, my supervisor would always advise us to first play games. And so mm-hmm. uh, I would play basketball with them. And it didn't matter if it took three sessions, five, six, seven sessions, an hour session that they come in, eventually they'd start opening up about something going on in their world. Um, and I would just be patient with them and reflect and just listen and just totally be present for the child and, or the teen. And so, um, playing basketball, um, hockey, we do hockey board games. And then at first it might feel a little bit like, really, like I'm not, you know, like you want to connect so quickly and it's hard because the patience, um, but With time and like with the constant, that constant sort of interaction and then building that trust, I have found that to be success, successful, which kids want to start talking. Um, it, or you can be more intentional and get a board game that actually has questions that are more for teenagers. They have games like that yeah. where, yeah, for parents, they have, uh, there's a lot, there's like websites I can send you with like board games and activities that are centered towards that, that therapists use with questions that are focused on teenage years. Um, so that is a more directive form of counseling, which is that, that would be more directive form, I guess, in parenting to use with parenting. Yeah, um, so- that patience piece is so hard for us as parents, though. Like, for me, I just want to fix it. And if my son's having a problem, yeah. you know, I'm I'm digging, trying to get it yeah. out of him. What's happening? Come on, tell me. It's so hard for me to back off and wait. Um, that's yeah. definitely one of my weak areas that I'm still working on, especially now that he's a teen and he doesn't want to talk to me a whole lot about what's happening um, emotionally. And, you know, so that's that's a really good lesson for parents is that however long it takes is how long it takes and we just have to be I think you know you're building that trust you're showing them that you have their back you're always going to be in their corner and you're there when they're ready to talk to you um and two, you know, if, if it's a time where they're really upset, they're not really available to have a rational conversation anyway. I mean, the physiology of the brain says that if they're super anxious or super emotional, then the frontal lobe isn't really accessible. So those conversations in those moments aren't going to be fruitful anyway. Right. Yeah, um, definitely. I, yeah. And if, you know, as and it's also okay to, at some point after building that trust and rapport to try and have that discussion or, Hey, 
through that board game, you know, say, oh, there's a question here. I'm hey, let's, you want to talk about this? And if they back off and they say no, like in, in counseling, how we'd handle that is just reflecting that, okay, you don't want to go there. Hey, have we played this game again? Or, you know, like, and, and it's, it's just reflecting it back. Okay, I understand. I respect that. And then moving forward. And eventually um, the walls start to come down most yeah. often. And if not, there could be something else going on with that child or that teen. So we start to explore um, in therapy. But as a parent, yeah, I understand like, oh my gosh, the patience piece is so hard. And it just shows that you're such a wonderful mom because you care and that you just want to so quickly find that answer. And that's hard. Yeah. Um, but I think um, it, I agree with you that sort of stepping back and allowing the process to unfold is also very therapeutic. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've learned over time, I've figured out how to remain calm most of the time and to show empathy and validate feelings and, you know, let them say whatever they're going to say. So I can kind of get a picture of what that experience is like for them. But then that patience piece of mm-hmm. wanting to help and fix it, that's like the next step that I'm still struggling yeah. with. That's, a harder piece for me just you know I mean a lot of us as moms I think our first inclination is to fix it you know get the band-aid fix the boo-boo and for things like ADHD and autism and learning disabilities and stuff that that's not reality so it's hard to shift our mindset but it's really important yeah definitely I agree for sure <laughs> Why don't we, in the last few minutes, talk about your book? Um, because I think it's a really awesome um, format that you have created in this book to reach a lot of different kids in different ways. I appreciate that. Thank you. I'd love to talk about it. Um, well, let's see where to start. <laughs> um, I created the book, um, My Little Cupcake because I was inspired by my daughter when she was little and her love for reading. And at the same time, I started reflecting upon my life and how I grew to love books. And it wasn't easy um, because Alexia. So I wanted to create a format of a book that was more holistic in the way it was developed. I wanted a book that could reach more kids and kids with learning differences like dyslexia, as well as have some features uh, that were mindful of us. of other concerns, such as like, we were careful about the colors that we selected. I'd done some research about colors and light sensitivity, as well as I wanted it to be engaging and capture the attention for kids with like um, ADHD or autism. I wanted it to be visually appealing. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted activities at the back of the book. Too, so it's, it helps with learning and absorption in school. And um, so that's the idea of the book. It's a fun story between mom and daughter and, um, you know, daughter and the little girl, Dave. She wants to bake cupcakes, or I'm sorry, she don't, the mom wants to bake cupcakes. The little girl wants to actually have a tea party, but the mom has other plans in mind. And so they get into sort of this sort of sassy, fun conversation and then start singing. And so it ends up being that they're in the, in the kitchen baking cupcakes. And we talk about counting the cupcakes and we use a lot of learning. And at the back of the book, there's a resource page for parents. And it just talks about just basic, it's a basic resource list. Um, and then I will have a more extensive resource list that I'm working on right now. We'll, I can also do that link, um, Penny, and I'm going to put yeah. it up on my website. Um, and then um, and, and then, I, like I said, there's a cupcake recipe. And then there's also my favorite activity in the book is a guided relaxation exercise. 
um, for kids. And it uses the idea of cupcakes and smelling the cupcakes and tasting the cupcake mm. in a visual and so a child, um, I went to some schools recently and I've been volunteering time reading the book and kids will lay out on the floor and they get comfortable in their space. And I would just read the script and basically it's a, coming from Daisy, the character herself. And so it's a relatable with the kids, but, um, it teaches them mindfulness and it teaches them to take time out of their day. Let's say they're feeling anxious or, um, they need a moment. And so it's just kind of, um, smelling the cupcake, cooling it down, breathing in and then blowing out, uh, blowing the cupcake, the steam off the cupcakes. And so just like a fun way to learn to relax. So we yeah. have like that in the book and um, it's a lot of fun. I purposely did not introduce through the characters, the idea of disability because I wanted to introduce them as people first. And it yeah. was very important to me to set that as a, an example, because I learned that a lot as an accessibility consultant at UCF with accommodations to treat people as people. And it's important, you know, and, and not, not as, not focus on the disability, but first, Hey, we're people, we're human. And, um, and so it was important to start the story like that. And then in the next book, um, which I'm writing right now, actually we will delve more into the hidden disabilities, the hidden right. difference. Yeah. Um, awesome. And the book yeah. is tactile too, correct? Um, tactile in the sense of, do you mean, uh, how do you mean? Is there texture or anything on the pages? Well, it's not. Something? Okay. I, w- I wish. <laughs> I thought that's what I, I just misunderstood. I right. think something, but. No. So what I, what I did is it, I made it tactile in the sense that we have activities at the back of the book that encourage gotcha. you to- yeah. So for example, there's a cupcake activity where the kids get to create a cupcake. And then and when I'm in the classroom, what I do is we use, um, uh, what do you call it? Different, um, uh, what is it? Uh, not whipped cream, but it's like whipped cream. Um, can't think of the word right now. Shaving cream. Thank you. Shaving cream. Yeah. We use shaving cream and we get the kids involved and put on sprinkles and we actually use real scents like real like cinnamon and spices and we put it on yeah. the paper. So it was like this sort of visual and tactile experience. And so really the book encourages kids to get tactile, to become more tactile. And um, I wish in my perfect world of like, I would, that book, I would take it and magnify it and put more into it as far as like, I would love to do Braille one day and um, yeah. like just make it more, you know, friendly, sensory friendly. Um, um, but I do feel like it's a great start in that it's more well-rounded. And, um, so yeah, so that's the plan. And, um, I I've love been- that it gets people doing an activity at the end, like that it's incorporating, we're not just reading this book and learning something from it, but it, it offers ways to move on from there and to continue to implement what it's teaching, which is amazing. Thank you. Yeah, that was the goal. And at the and we have Daisy, the character who's talking to the kids. And so it's like Daisy at the end is like, let's go bake cupcakes. And so it's encouraging baking with the, with the caregiver, whether that's a parent or a teacher. And then the, Daisy is talking to them through um, the relaxation exercise. And so it's like, let's go with Daisy on a journey. And so Daisy's going to take them on the next book journey. And so, yeah, it's just, it's a fun thing. I, I will tell you, um, for me personally, um, I went to this school in in South Florida. And, uh, one of the 
some feedback I got just meant a lot to me was that um, the teacher had said how much she appreciated that I was there because there was like four kids in the class with dyslexia. And what I tried to do at the end of the story and what I talked to kids about is inclusion and acceptance of others. And we use the idea of like cupcakes and how they're all different and they smell different and they taste oftentimes different. There might be some similarities, but there's a lot of differences too. And so we use that as discussion. And then I, I moved into reading and I talked to the kids about how we all are different in our learning styles and we need to, you know, accept each other. And, um, and so she was really grateful when she came up and said that there was four kids that needed to hear the message that they're also doing great. Like that they're yeah. not them, you know? Yeah. Um, so it was so awesome. The book has become more than a book. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. It's become like yeah. a journey of opportunity to advocate a message of inclusion in the school school system. So, which we so desperately need. Yes. We so need that message of acceptance and that differences are are okay, even to be celebrated. You know, we have this, especially in mass education, public education. Here, we we have this you know, real focus on sameness and <laughs> doing the same as everyone else and doing it the same way as everyone else. And so it really gives our kids with ADHD or other learning challenges, even more of a feeling that they're an outsider. So the more yeah. we can talk about inclusion and differences and acceptance, the better all of our kids. And I think I other kids too, you know, for neurotypical kids, this message of inclusion and accepting others and, and the beauty of having this, you know, really diverse um, community around them is very helpful and effective for neurotypical kids too. You know, you're building character and, and um, you know, things that are going to help them throughout their lives as well. So it really is a message for everyone. Uh-huh, definitely. And creativity and being creative and having that opportunity to express yourself just adds to that, like you were saying about um, differences and how it's okay to be different. And so I think creativity gives kids an opportunity to do that, to be themselves and say, hey, I'm yeah. different. Look at me. I'm, you know, I'm great. You know, so there's so many strengths and positivities and wonderful things also about, you know, ADHD and dyslexia and all these things. And so I think, like you said earlier, um, Penny is finding those moments, finding those opportunities in school and at home to highlight those things and how the child's succeeding um, is huge. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm happy to send you those links for um, the sites that we talked about. And so that way parents can have some of these tools at at their hand as well. Yeah. So all of those links and the show notes and ways to connect with Kim, um, including a link to her book will be um, at parentingadhdandautism.com slash 038. This is episode 38. And so if you go to that URL, you will find all of that information with um, a variety of links to help you implement this with your own kids and in your own families. And maybe some teachers are watching and can implement in their classrooms or listening, I'm sorry, and can implement in their classrooms as well. So I really enjoyed this conversation, Kim, and I'm so thankful for you in volunteering your time to share these insights with parents and help the families out there who um, can certainly benefit from these approaches. Thank you, Penny. And I'm so grateful 
to be talking with you. And um, like I said earlier, both professionally and personally, you've helped me so much in my growth as well as a parent. And I really appreciate your podcast. I'll keep tuning in. So thanks again. Awesome. Thank you. So everyone go check out the show notes and I will see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. If you like what you just heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Visit the website, parentingadhdandautism.com for so much more on successfully raising kids with ADHD. Be sure to check out the podcast section as well for previous shows. Join us next time for more parenting strategies and insights that actually work for kids with ADHD.